This is an interim topic that is sometimes hard hitting. As another church's member once said about another sermon of mine, Greg, we're not used to being challenged from the pulpit. <laughs> I thought to myself, but this is a congregation, not a cocktail party. And then she added, this, but this is just what we need. Conflict avoided. Of course, you are free to disagree with her and with me. So let's begin. In the well-known story, The Rabbi's Gift, we encounter an old monastery that has declined to the point that it is clearly dying. It had once been a vibrant and thriving community with many dedicated members, but now consists of four elderly monks and their tired abbot. A cloud of angry depression hovers over them, and they are impatient and crotchety with each other. They are ashamed of what they've become. Looking for advice, the abbot goes to visit a rabbi who lives nearby. He asks the rabbi if he can think of ways to prop up the failing monastery. Perhaps there is a program or a restructuring plan or a new charismatic leader or a larger source of income or a remodeling project or something that can help reverse the decline and set things right. The rabbi says he cannot think of anything, and then he tells the abbot the one thing he does know, and it's this. One of you is the Messiah. Uninspired, the abbot returns to the monastery and shares this peculiar pronouncement with the monks. The rabbi must be crazy. As they think of their pathetic little community, they are sure that none of them could possibly be the Messiah. No, the help they need must come from outside, from the experts. Still, they worry and seem almost comforted by their insecurity. What if, what if the rabbi knows something we don't? So on the off chance that the rabbi may be onto something, they begin to look at each other with a kind of affectionate curiosity that gradually becomes respect and then evolves into love. They begin to treat each other as if the other was indeed the Messiah. By chance, a visitor stumbles onto the monastery and is immediately captivated by the spirit of serenity that enfolds this community. He then tells some friends. The word spreads and soon more visitors arrive just to experience the loving sense of community that is otherwise missing from their busy lives. Some visitors even take the plunge and join the community, becoming pilgrims rather than tourists. Gradually, gradually, the monastery is restored to vibrant life. 
What happened at the monastery is no, no miracle. And that is what makes this story so powerful, not to mention relevant. When we first hear about the monastery's decline, there is little about the monks that evokes power or relevance. Instead, we see five survivors hanging on for dear life, perhaps the only life they've ever known. The beautiful edifice which houses them and the expansive grounds that surround them suggest that they did at one time have their finger on the pulse of the community and culture they sought to serve. They knew their purpose in life, to love the holy and their neighbors, one they could easily evaluate through acts of kindness and deeds of justice. This purpose attracted new adherents precisely because it could be stated clearly and remembered easily. But something happened on the way to success and members new and old began to fall away. Perhaps this was due to a change in demographics. It is difficult to minister to those whom you've never met or choose not to meet. It is impossible to know what your neighbors need if you don't ask them about it. Then again, it may be that as the community grew, the need for a more supportive infrastructure, not to mention policies that define ways of being together, made it necessary to turn inward, away from both the holy and their neighbors. After all, it takes order and organization to sustain an intentional community. Could it be that their inward focus bonded the group so tightly that newcomers no longer fit in or they were simply no longer needed? Were they ignored? Were there cliques? Does anyone know their names? One thing that may have been driving the monastery into decline is its traditions. What was once innovative and efficacious is no longer either, but the monks are unmoved because we've always done it this way. Change is seen as negative and stability is confused with stagnation. The preservation and perpetuation of the past may have become the monks' primary purpose which is fine for museums and mausoleums, but deadly for living traditions and intentional communities. Some said the monastery had become personality driven prior to its decline. The governance system there mirrored that of the church universal with a hierarchy that concentrated most of the authority in the abbot. The monks were always asking, what does the abbot want? The agenda was determined more by the background needs and insecurities of the leader than by the needs of the monks. Still, it was much easier to follow the leader. 
Others are sure that the decline was exacerbated when programs and events became the purpose that drove the monastery. More visitors brought with them varied and divergent expectations for the monastery. And in the name of inclusion, no programs were ever eliminated because we've always done it this way. To maintain this unfocused program structure, the goal shifted from de developing people to filling slots. Meetings replaced ministry as the primary activity of adherence. It should probably be mentioned that the monastery's building and grounds has driven the agenda on more than one occasion. It is too bad they weren't familiar with Winston Churchill's observation that we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. The monks told themselves that renting rooms to like-minded organizations was a ministry, but others saw it as outsourcing that which they should have been doing themselves. Moreover, there was little community in this community. At the lowest point of their decline, almost all that had been was gone and none of it mattered anymore. With only five members, there were no programs and little need of a supportive structure. Traditions were only distant memories and neighbors were perceived as outsiders. Had it not been for an insightful rabbi, one who could verbalize the monastery's sole purpose to those who had been working for years at cross purposes, this institution would have died. One of you is the Messiah. How would we act? What would we do? What would we stop doing? Where would we go? How would we make decisions as a welcoming community seeking hope, love, and justice if we really believed that one of us here today is the Messiah? That is one thing of which I am sure. One of you at least is the Messiah. And once we realize that hope's future is already in our midst, that we are indeed a redemptive community of radical inclusion, what have we to fear? It is a fact that growing churches have a clear-cut identity. They know who they are and whose they are. They are precise in their purpose. They know what their business is, and they know what is none of their business. In these churches, nothing precedes purpose, and nothing is undertaken that does not support directly the purpose discerned by the congregation. Forget mission statements with their flowery language and meandering inspirations. Give me a purpose statement that is clear, concise, and memorable, and I'll know where you've been and where you're going. Say it often, 
Display it everywhere, and I'll be reminded why I came to join this community in the first place. Filter all of the church's activities through it so that, as Peter Drucker explains, we are not just doing things right. Instead, we are doing the right things. A clear purpose builds morale. An ancient sage advises, let there be real harmony so that there won't be splits in the church. Be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For this wise one, the key to congregational unity was to be united in purpose. If your purpose is unclear, your morale will be low. An atmosphere of harmony in any church is a catalyst for effective ministry. People working together for a great purpose don't have time to argue over trivial issues. As one pastor put it, when you're helping row the boat, you don't have time to rock it. <laughs> Priorities are clear and morale is high when a congregation's purpose is precise. A clear purpose also reduces frustration. Remember, a clear purpose not only determines what we do, it also defines what we don't do. Most of you here this morning would agree with me that Hope Church does not have the time or the resources or the people power to do everything. Yet how many times have you heard, the church ought to be doing this, or we need to be doing that? While many of these suggestions are truly noble activities, that they are noble is not the issue. The purpose filter must always be in place. Does this activity fulfill the purpose of the church? The secret of effectiveness is to know what is truly important and then do what is truly important and not worry about the rest. When a church forgets its purpose, it has a difficult time deciding what is important. Says one observer, an indecisive church is an unstable church. Almost anything can get it off track. It will vacillate between priorities, purposes, and programs. A clear purpose allows us to forget, forget about what doesn't really matter. A corollary to reducing frustration, a clear purpose allows for concentration. I like to think of this in terms of light. When light is focused, it has tremendous power. Harness the sun's light through a magnifying glass's focus. A leaf can sunbathe all day and never get burned. Diffuse light has almost no power at all. Without the magnifying glass's focus, that leaf won't be set on fire. The same holds true for churches. Many churches become distracted by good but less important agendas, 
programs and purposes. Most churches try to do too much. The older a church gets, the truer this becomes. They often add to their agendas and rarely cut anything out. When the energy of the church is diffused and dissipated, the power is lost. What if we assessed the work of this church in the world by asking of each program, event, agenda, committee, affiliated organization, and ministry, would we begin this today if we were not already doing it? What if we never begin a ministry without first having someone to lead it? Remember, you are the church, the doers, the planners, the builders, the dreamers, the designers, the decision makers. Too many purposes diffuse the energy of the church and dilute its purpose. We must never confuse efficiency, doing things right, with effectiveness, doing the right things. What is hope known for in the wider community? What is its reputation? What primary purpose ignites its passion? A clear purpose attracts cooperation. An old proverb says that if your goals are good, you will be respected. Newcomers want to join a church that knows where it's going. Members will get excited about their church, actively support it, and generously give to it when they are clear about the congregation's intent. It is easier to recognize the gifts we have to offer the church if the church is clear about its own purpose. It isn't fair to accept folks into membership without being clear about who we are and where we're going. Hope's visitors and newer members fall into two broad categories. Those who bring, those who bring expectations with them from other congregations and those who altogether lack previous experience in congregational settings. In both cases, being upfront about our purpose before they join promotes greater collaboration and loyalty once they have signed the membership book. It also means that when we can require more of those who wish to join the church in support of its purpose. The days of just sign the book, add love and stir, in Unitarian Universalist congregations needs to come to an end. For newcomers to make good decisions about us, they need to know us. A required membership course, okay, a suggested membership course, <laughs> in what it means to be a member and how to discover your spiritual gifts, along with designated community service hours in one of the church's ministries would enable better discernment and close the revolving door. 
Finally, a clear purpose assists evaluation. Congregations need to examine themselves at least annually to determine if they are doing the right things. This is not to be done in comparison to other congregations, but by holding up who we are and what we do in light of hope's purpose. For the church to stay relevant and remain influential, congregational leaders must constantly ask, are we doing the right things and how well are we doing them? As Peter Drucker says, what is our business and how's business? Our purpose must become the standard by which we measure the congregation's health and growth. So how can hope stay healthy and grow gracefully? First, we must define our purpose. Then we must communicate our purpose regularly so that those within and beyond church walls know what we stand for. Next, we must organize the church around its purpose. And finally, we must apply its purpose to every part of congregational life. Now, in case you were wondering, becoming a church on purpose takes hard work and a long time, which is why most congregations stumble rather than charge and stutter rather than prophesy. Yet the opportunity to redefine our purpose and reorder our priorities is always an option. No matter how big or small a church is, no matter how young or how old, or how rich or poor. This congregation has done so throughout its history, and the doors of this church are open this morning because in times past, being comfortable was less important than being relevant and powerful. And who knows? Someone here has always probably known that one of you is the Messiah. She could be singing in the choir. He could be ushering. They could be teaching children or serving coffee. Who knows? And that's the point. When you leave this sanctuary this morning, look around you and act as if one of you is the Messiah. Don't look at me, you say. <laughs> Why not, I say. When we finally realize that hope's future rests in the hands and hearts of those who call this place holy, we have begun to know its purpose. With this knowledge, we can redefine any ambiguities and become a church on purpose. Meanwhile, there is a monastery somewhere in the world that knew why it existed, lost its focus, and redefined its purpose, and then came back to life. This is the kind of ordinary resurrection that can birth extraordinary possibilities. If you came here this morning looking to save your life, don't look upward. Instead, look to your right and to your left. 
That's one purpose of liberal religion. There is always a Messiah standing on the corner. There is always a Buddha sitting under a tree. Let's be a church on purpose, more of a spiritual emergency room than a church on the hill. A truly redemptive community of radical inclusion, one in which many messiahs are needed. All of you are the messiah. Don't look at me, you say. Why not, I say, to the glory of life.